Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode 62. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts. The other co-host's name is Janus, and he will be here shortly. Today we speak to mystic artist, performer, evil mastermind, and good personal friend, Arun Joseph Reagan, who runs a modern Greco-Egyptian style temple in Portland, Oregon, and is constantly in the process of crafting ritual masks, banners, vestments, and other esoteric paraphernalia. You can find his work that we will be talking about pretty extensively in the episode at the Aruniverse, A-R-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E, which has uh, an Etsy page where you can purchase the aforementioned masks, banners, vestments, etc. And the other site is Hecanthros, H-E-K-A-N-T-H-A-R-O-S. And there is a Facebook page and a Patreon page associated with that. In the episode, we talk to Joseph about his personal praxis and his insights in working with antique religious and magical materials such as the Greek magical papyri. I found it really fun and interesting to talk to Joseph about some of these insights as they relate to his practice. Um, He has a very unique way of looking at things which is shaped by his consistent and persistent practice. As always, we want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, Patreon literally helps us keep the show rolling. Running a podcast is not free. There are monthly expenses, so uh, we appreciate any help that our listeners can offer. If you'd like to make a one-time or continuing donation to the show, find us on Patreon and do what makes sense for you. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepios. May any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are very happy to finally have this guest on the show. We've been waiting for a while for it to happen. I'm not sure why it didn't happen earlier. Um, this uh, is Arun Joseph Reagan, also known as Zygote. Um, and I'm sure there are a few other names floating out there. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Yeah. I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Totally. Totally. Um, so... I definitely want to cover briefly how you got to where you are um, as far as your your practices, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Well, um, to keep it simple and short, 
because I'm so much more interested in the present and the future than um, I am with, with previous affiliations, but I do have to give credit where credit is due and uh, was definitely influenced by, by everything I've been a part of over the years. But um, just to simplify, I um, started with my first magical link really just being through the process of drawing and of trying to craft, um, usually out of paper, but out of anything else I could find as well, uh, companions. And the, the idea of the animation of, or at least the uh, personification of uh, materials in order to create beings was just like constant urge, the constant thing that propelled me as a little, little kid. And so the first, uh, you know, cut to Alabama, you know, sometime in the late 70s, a little like four-year-old or five-year-old me um, sitting on the on the floor with uh, with having cut the little red devil um, logos out of the wrapper of um, Underwood's deviled ham. Uh, <laughs> it has these famous like little red little devil figures in a little vest, a little trident. I, I cut those out and would just play with them as my little companions and uh, was just in delight. And I feel like there was like a, a magical link <laughs> was either formed there or um, uh, became obvious that uh, these uh, little satyr beings were just like my the best thing I'd ever seen. And uh, so I just played with them. And that kind of combination of like mythical figures and the am- animation of designs upon paper mm-hmm. um, became a, a lasting theme. So so there was that and then cut forward a little bit when um, I'm in a little bit older, I'm still always doodling, always drawing, kind of always kind of living on page. I experienced as a, you know, like adolescent, you know, kind of going through the stage of like the torment of all of the bodily hungers of just, you know, I want something sweet now. Uh, Now I want something salty after I had something sweet. Okay, I'm not hungry, but I still want to eat stuff. Now I'm tired. Oh, I want to stay up all night, though. Um, I want this. And it's just like, you know, everything being a push-pull, a, uh, you know, a need or a want or or a, a something that has to be relieved regarding mm-hmm. the body. And that being a this perpetual thing, just perpetual discomfort, perpetual appetite. And, and feeling that all the time and kind of beginning to despair of realizing that, you know, incarnate existence is just nothing but a series mm-hmm. of, of things that have to be relieved. And then... Picking up the page, picking up a, a tablet of paper, and uh, beginning to write on some, you know, getting a little inspiration and beginning to to doodle, to draw, and then to just get all the way into, you know, page after page of developing a theme. Then hours and hours going by, and and me not tracking whether or not I had to go to the bathroom, not tracking whether or not I need to drink water, not tracking what time it is, whether or not I'm tired, because I was completely in a space where there were no appetites, there were no um, uh, pressures to be relieved. There were no like, uh, what do I do next? Um, mm-hmm. You know, d- definitely no boredom. Like none of the things that you know is the adolescent body torments one with. Um, I felt like doing that. You know, creating in in some way, but usually in the form of drawing. I would shift at that moment from you know something that needs and wants and and just you know an endothermic reaction that just requires more more energy put into it, but never can get there, can never get to satiety. I went from that state into, you know, an exothermic reaction. Suddenly I'm, you know, a fountain of energy. Like I, I don't need any inputs at all. I'm outputting and just Mm -hmm. like, you know, and so that connection 
for me was kind of when the light switch was flipped as far as a relationship with the type of magical current that I feel determines my life. Um, mm. That's kind of like that first contact for me really was through the creative process of seeing myself transformed from an endless pit of appetites and needs and discomforts. Life, you know, went from that um, to creating just like freely and uh, uh, with limitless energy and enthusiasm and with uh, fulfillment, total fulfillment, like not needing another person, not needing something to put in my mouth, not needing anything to to relieve regarding my body in any way. My body just disappeared into its function of enabling contact between whatever it was that was being creatively explored or expressed and the page and the medium. And uh, that kind of was the next, you know, aha moment. And in the meantime, you know, there was definitely always kind of the uh, weird kid syndrome, you know, always very, you know, mythologically oriented, always very, you know, I'm not going to like list off, um, you know, little details to try to prove that I'm magic or anything. I just sort of uh, had, um, you know, just a usual weird kid. But the thing that was the meaningful connection was uh, being able to shift from being something that just only needs and shifting from that into something that is uh, radiantly outputting and that doesn't require and that um, is is completely self-sufficient because, you know, the thing that was a, an input <laughs> um, suddenly has become like a, a beacon, you know, the there was that shift into, you know, the light switch being turned on whenever I was in the creative act. And then when I was not, I was just, you know, a typical kid. As soon as I could plug in to the creative process, I did. And my, my brother was kind of similar. We would, you know, spend, you know, nights and nights of, of just drawing in tandem, you know, each in our kind of own way, in our own style. And uh, the heavy influence of, of Egypt uh, themes for the most part, especially for him. And uh, I would try to incorporate other other cultural themes, but always the iconography of ancient cultures was the most attractive thing in terms of themes. I did things a little bit more, um, you know, like I would do mutant versions of everything. I was a very color outside of the lines kid, and he was the opposite. He was uh, a very meticulous, um, creating things very precisely, you know, like according to, like his thing was like creating 18th dynasty, um, kind of middle kingdom tomb art, you know, with the proportionate grid and uh, everything being like, as you know, according to the very precise language of iconography that determined, you know, the quote unquote Egyptian look, you know, for something to actually be like an, an official, um, like, let's say, you know, study the first tomb art, you know, what would go on the walls there, mm -hmm. you know, it has like a formula to it in terms of the proportions and in terms of how sure. it's done. And he was very good about that sort of thing. He was very uh, soul in Virgo. And uh, so, you know, he was like the right hand of Hermes and then uh, right hand of Mercury. And then I'm, you know, soul in Gemini and sort of the left hand of Mercury. So I, I kind of mutate everything that I touch, whereas he was very good at perfectly reproducing things um perfectly creating like a very uh impeccable rendition so jump ahead you know 20 plus years you're still doing the same practices i believe right yes the function the function of of, of what i serve creatively 
has not changed. Um, you know, there, it's it's kind of been put through a, a, a lot of adjustments and training. But the the thing that I do, which is like, I'm not here to recreate something that already exists. I'm here to express what the forces that created that thing are doing now. I I feel that it's like all these things are still active, or the ones that are are. I mean, I, I think there are some that are not. Um, in terms of like ancient deities and forces, I think, you know, a lot of them, you know, either fulfilled their purpose or moved on and got bored with us or something. There, there are some that are like not life current, um, but there, there are those that are and that I think have great interest in uh, the possibilities that are available with humanity in its current state uh, and that are very active and are um, very available for responding to to petitions and forming relationships with with people that want to engage them as sources of inspiration and enthusiasm you know what i like is, yes i like the the fact that your imaginal life um in childhood was something that ended up being a prefiguration of your your theurgic work later i mean it's almost like an like an echo backwards into in time you know of what you're doing now yes very much so it's uh it's almost as if my um adult life were conjured into being by magic done by myself as a child when i had <laughs> the same enthusiasms uh for mm-hmm. the most part the same uh fixations um, you know, the, the things that attracted me then are, are still, you know, I'm, I'm creating now in the round, um, and out of materials, you know, that I find around me, you know, wearable slash becomable versions of the little satyrs that were on the deviled ham wrappers, you know, it's, it's the, the same idea has simply, um, germinated and has incorporated more media and has, uh, come into a situation where I now lead, you know, processions of seasonal celebratory processions of people dressed as these beings and they get to have the kinetic uh element added as well and uh we get to be them they get to be us celebrating co-presence with them rather than just playing with them um as toys so it sounds to me like you are you're engaging your work as an active participant in cosmosis like your artistic creativity is a, a, a microcosmic um, inaction of the cosmic creativity. So you're participating in demiurgy. Yes. In a positive. In the sense of, of you know, of Ta or of the, you know, of the maker. Thank the maker. Not demiurge as in the, the view of demiurge, meaning blind idiot god, uh, uh, ultimate uh, prison warden. Um, I, that's not how I see the demiurge is definitely more of uh, that uh, total function of the creative process that includes all particular functions of the creative process. And that's I engage a particular function of the creative process. And therefore, I am the local agent of the total function of the creative process or the demiurge, along with every other being who is doing likewise. Right. And I guess like people who have listened to our podcast know what we mean by that. But then, you know, some people who are newer to the podcast may not be familiar with that. But in theurgy, demiurgy is not a negative. It's not pejorative. It actually uh, describes the way that the theurgist, the divine, the the divine magician uh, is participating in the act of uh, cosmic renovation. 
the reno- perpetual renovation of the cosmos through the infusion of life force uh, via eudaimonia, among other things. Yes. It only degenerates into into the blind idiot god screaming I am I in, uh, in a room by himself at, at midnight um, if you allow it to, or if you... Uh, if you uh, fall too far into solipsism and uh, lose connection with all of the other radiant creative forces that are around you. And um, it's one of the dangers of uh, solo path um, fixation upon particularly a premature engagement with, with some of the practices that one might be uh, introduced to, um, especially without a guide, um, one can fall too far down the solipsistic looking glass rabbit hole and end up um, divorced from all of the other uh, fragments of Godhead that are operating <laughs> around you. And the result of that is um, you become a, a, a wonderful demonstration of the negative connotations of the demiurge. And that is um, the being who genuinely believes that they are the only center of the universe. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, yeah, no, that's, that's a, a great point And, you know, a great warning because that is the path that a lot of people find themselves on is the solo path. And you you don't know what you don't know when you're on that path. You don't have someone to direct you, obviously, because it's a solo path. And so, yeah, there are a lot of dangers there um, as you're pointing out. Yeah, you, you don't have the properly timed embarrassments and humiliations administered as right. you realize your blind spots. You have your blind spots pointed out by other people who, if they are good friends, pull you aside and say, by the way, <laughs> maybe you need to be aware of there's this thing you do. And <laughs> um, and then uh, you're able to, after you get over, you know, uh, if you take it personally, <laughs> then at, once you get over that, you then realize like, oh, that was... <laughs> The whole reason I'm part of this group is to have things like that pointed out so I can uh, level up and, and move on from right. my own ignorance. Um, or if um, if you get good at not taking it personally, then that process can happen pretty rapidly and r- relatively painlessly. Um, but for most of us, it's, it's really just like crawling down the path of perpetual humiliation until you finally get your um, major blind spots exposed and then you can uh, um, become a little bit more of a rounded, well-rounded person who plays well with others. And that's ultimately what I want to be, is a well-rounded person who plays well with others. I, I don't want to define myself just in terms of you know these uh, affiliations that um, I passed through and had benefit from, and then kind of graduated from into like, and now you got to actually do the thing. And so, yes, I was part of Temple of Psychic Youth and was part of the Ordo, Ordo Templi Orientis and they were great and they were lovely. And I had my my time with each, um, but I am a spiritual bachelor. Um, I'm not going to marry into these groups permanently or assume the missionary position for anyone. I am sort of, you know, I have my fun and I had a lot of wonderful relationships with those organizations and the currents that they represent. And they did get me to the next place. And from there on, I wanted to continue on my own. And I'm more interested in what happens next after initiation than I am in just like, what initiations do I have? You know, it's more like, and what are you doing with it? And, you know, what is, 
What is your relationship with the forces represented by the symbols that were part of that initiation? Have you met it yet? You know, or are you just still, you know, fondling the symbol upon the altar and rearranging them? Or, you know, are you just constantly dialing up the reality that you want to experience? Are or are you exiting the temple and walking out into the big sexy universe and encountering and meeting um, what it was that you were asking for and actually engaging with it? And I'm I'm in that stage now, and it just means it's in one sense, yes, I am definitely the result of all of my influences, and uh, I am you know I have you know much gratitude to give to many. Also, in another sense, I'm on my own, and it's just like me and the universe working it out. And uh, I, um, you know, I, I I see from both both of those points of view. I don't like to get too caught up though, caught up in uh, organizations and in defining myself according to you know some special guy in his book or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I, I cannot pretend that I am somehow completely self-generated. I, I definitely am the sum of my influences. But then all of those influences caught fire when they were put in contact with the diamondus. And um, the result of that uh, dumpster fire is that um, I get to create by its light. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Can we talk a little bit about what you do, what you do, why you're here with us tonight? Like, what, what is it that Arun does? We know. You know. Okay. The, the full expression of what I do. Um, where you can kind of see it all at once, is in the form of uh, seasonal celebratory processions, ritual processions, something that a uh, pompe or a um, basically a little magic parade. And the form that that you know takes is I create masks and regalia and vestments and garlands and banners that and uh, we and they include of course. Uh, you know, eventually there will be more sistre, or uh, you know, like we'll have uh, a lot more noise-making things. I kind of have um, a few things like that, but uh, just like and imagine a um, fully vestmented and um, ritually masked, theatrically masked congregation of people bearing incense and bearing vessels of lustration and uh, bearing banners upon which there are printed and uh, collaged or otherwise affixed emblems, you know, appropriate to a god of the seasons. Right now we're just doing them on, you know, summer solstice was the most recent one where we went up on top of Mount Tabor and kind of went from one end of the park to the other and back um, as a solemn yet joyous procession. And uh, before that, of course, was the spring equinox. And I'm right now committing to doing them once, you know, once per season and just, you know, in that classic four corners of the year. But um, it, I do intend to include more. The the uh, one that started first, though, it's completely, uh, uh, for whatever reason, is 13 years ago, we started doing the uh, Krampuslauf or like a, a winter procession on December 5th for Krampusnacht. And that kind of... Uh, really kind of stirred something of like, oh, like I really want to do processions for the other quadrants of the year as well. But it took forever to do it because um, I think uh, people are just really stirred by, uh, um, you know, a demon parade in, in early December. And uh, it takes a while to, I realize it's going to take a while to generate interest <laughs> in the rest of the seasons. But that's a, that's a detail. Back to what I do. It's um, 
the goal ultimately is to have a um, a group of people who are interested in um, the vocal and ritual and contemplative aspects of this work as well, such that the the chants that we are are um, singing as as we do these processions are are derived many of them from the Vocius Magica of the uh, Greco Egyptian magical papyri or the Nomina Barbara, um, taking those um, that are applicable and that can be translated musically and having people, you know, who get together with me for chanting circles at uh, my temple space uh, to kind of build up the familiarity and uh, kind of uh, get people uh, plugged into the current, so to speak. And then um, the masks and the vestments that they wear are uh, created with the intention of them being uh, talismanic in the sense of inhabited, in the, or at least in the sense of them being uh, a way through which the forces that they represent can be um, present and can be embodied through the celebrant who is wearing them. And uh, part of that is the fulfillment of the relationship that is my my long-term defining uh, significant other uh, level relationship that I have with Diamondus uh, and the, the theoi that um, the Diamondus are sent by or, or emanated by. Um, that idea of this is uh, for the sources of my inspiration, for the for the um, spirits, let's call them, that I invoke. Um, I give them opportunities of embodiment and form through creating masks, investments, and uh, for them, and uh, having uh, processions through which they can walk among us as us. And in exchange, I receive enthusiasm and inspiration. And so there's the uh, exchange of embodiment for enthusiasm or embodiment for inspiration. The voltage comes from them and keeps me very, very, very busy all the time uh, working on uh, creating all of these things, uh, always creating masks, always creating vestments, and always working towards ultimately um, having, you know, a, a full year's calendar of uh, uh, processions um, available, and always working towards uh, practicing and, and sharing the chants and the names of power and uh, holy words uh, with with those who then will eventually join me in kind of forming, you know, sort of hermetic choir, but not really, um, not, not quite a choir so much as um, those who would like together to share their voices for the purpose of invoking the forces uh, that, in, in, that animate our, our world, that bring to life our world, and that uh, fill our lives with enthusiasm, inspiration, and joy. And, Ultimately, uh, what the people who participate get out of it, ideally, is the inspiration, is, is the enthusiasm, such as I experience. And what the uh, non-corporeal participants get out of it is uh, times during which they can uh, consensually uh, experience co-presence with humans, those who are going forth um, representing them or you know going forth as them you know so the for example the the nymphs and the satyrs of the summer solstice gathering um i like to think that uh those those forces represented by by the satyroi and nymphae the um 
you know, the forces of the freshwater and the saltwater and of the trees and breeze and all of that um, were among us and not just among us, but were there as us and that their, their enjoyment, their pleasure at experiencing through the uh, rather sophisticated uh, sensors of the human nervous system of the participants, um, that that is a part of the offering, that the offering is to, to be here as us and uh, from the point of view of the celebrants, they get to enjoy the experience of of co-presence, of of feeling that um, uh, there's more here than usual inhabiting the form. Sure. And I uh, I, I really like to uh, emphasize like the idea of consensual co-presence with spirits, as opposed to uh, always having a narrative around possession <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as being like the only way that there can be more than um, two pres or more than one presence, uh, you know, within the context of someone's body. There's never just one presence within somebody's body, but um, there's uh, a space, which is all of it, every inch densely, densely haunted. Um, the, there are times when uh, we can experience more, uh, relate more to and uh, go with or live with that which is already there, which is there's so much, you know, in every every particle of space. I feel like I, in my vision of the cosmos, it's just um, densely, densely haunted. And um, it's not just haunted by the dead. Uh, it's There's just a lot happening everywhere. And, so, so, Joseph, um, what, I, um, sorry to interrupt. I was curious, since you touched on this just now, your view on on the spirits of the Greek magical papyri, in particular, um, that are connected to the the voces magicae, do you see them as um, kind of cogs in the machinery of reality, or do you see them more as kind of these beings hanging out in a castle up in the clouds? How, what's your perspective on on these beings, these spirits? I, I see them as um, so. Like, if you were to like drill all the way down to the the smallest unit that you could, if that were possible, you you know you have these like particles. Every particle being a self, whether we're talking about an atomic particle or talking about something that just correlates to that uh, for this metaphor. But um, I feel like every every point in space is. Um, not just inhabited, but every uh, point in space is animate. And those form together into little rivulets and uh, currents and breezes and tributaries, which can be thought of as, you know, either as like a, a little wisp that's, you know, part of a spirit or can be thought of as a host of spirits, depending on how, uh, what your magnifying glass is ter- tuned to, how mm-hmm. close it is to it. To it. And that these together, um, form you know spirits upon spirits upon spirits form tides and currents that then become a little bit more perceptible and recognizable to us and within that yes i think that there are you know particular individual selves and parts of particular selves that might have once lived um that can be identifiable and that one can um uh tune in on and uh and um get to come in close so to speak but that um there's i think there's just countless of them and the words that um, they respond to, what's responding, I believe, is um, 
many, many spirits that compose uh, currents that get set in motion, you know, by those words for, I don't know what it is about the sounds and certain sounds and certain shapes cause currents of these spirits to respond. And it, I, I'm using a very sloppy uh, train wreck between energy model and psychological model and spirit model model <laughs> because um, it's kind of like it's it's really neither of those. But you know, it, it kind of has to be all of the above. I think one can grab it from those ha- handles depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I, I find that just in terms of pragmatism, I. Uh, I have this, you know, model that, you know, however sloppy that might sound, um, it it works very well for me to understand what I'm doing. Particular presences, distinct persona, um, other selves, definitely are there and definitely emerge, and I experience this largely in the form of, let's say, I'm creating a mask, and it was it was by doing this, so I'll just use it as the example. So creating yeah. a mask uh, for a particular epithet of Picate. Um, and so like starting like, okay, I have, you know, kind of an idea of what I want to do. I want to make, you know, there's a particular name and I'm wanting to make a mask that's themed on that name. And at first it was, um, yeah, I'm, I am making an image of, you know, this, this particular name of, of Ikate. I'm going to do that. So that's what I'm doing. So I get to work on the mask. And then as I'm working on it and it, it kind of like, there's a moment where it just catches momentum where mm-hmm. it, it no longer requires effort. It's now like, I feel now that uh, the stone is rolling down the hill. I'm not pushing it up the hill. Um, and there's this, uh, suddenly I notice from uh, the material that I'm working on and, and how it's being composed into the face is that there's like a very distinct and surprising face will begin to emerge. Something that was still, you know, I guess connected with the theme, but it's not what I had in mind. And mm. But is so distinct and is so obviously not to be changed. And, and I'm like, who are you? And this, this uh, is one of the signs, I think, of uh, connection or of, of contact or yeah. of a successful um, link when I am creating one of these is when I am surprised, um, when I am, uh, you know, uh, conver- there's a, a combination of feelings of where it's kind of a little bit like I'm frightened and kind of a little bit like I'm in love mm-hmm. happens when a face will begin to emerge that is like so distinct so obviously, like this is somebody. This isn't. This isn't just like a a theme. This is like this somebody is now. This is organizing around a face that's there. Like I'm holding a face, and around that face, that is now organizing the materials as I'm, you know, adjusting it and moving it. And suddenly, this thing emerges that uh, shocks. And I came to my personal understanding of what that is: is that uh, each of the epithets of of the theoia of the gods has its host one of those currents that I was talking about and a host of diamonds and in, in that host, you know, if you uh, call upon that name, if you call upon the, the, the uh, holy words uh, associated with that name, if, if you focus on, you know, the sigils associated with that epithet or, or what have you. But in my case, it's just, if you just call upon that name and if you, you know, show your intent to give form to that aspect of the God, you know, that answers to that epithet or that is signified by that epithet, mm-hmm. um, there comes to you the host of that epithet. But in particular, there comes among in that host, there is like, you know, there's a particular daimon who then shows up and is part of the work. And those are distinct. Like they they're they um they're not homogenous <laughs> there's like they participate in a current you know that's kind of like as if there was like a breeze coming from the god 
Um, and and that breeze is you know made of you know what countless selves, countless souls, whatever. I don't mm-hmm. know uh, the, the extent of the magnitude. It really feels though that there's like there are many in the host of the god, and you know a breeze can come from the god that is composed of you know the many that serve that aspect of the god of the epithet that comes in answer to calling upon that name, and then in in that host you know there's one who then shows up and is like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do this with you and mm-hmm. and that comes about um uh in the form of what i'm inspired to do and then also in the form of what emerges no matter what it is that i think that i'm doing there's something that emerges and when it surprises me and when it is like so much more than the sum of its parts and when it if there's a point where the effort you know ceases to be effort and there's there's a feeling there's a, a a switch of a flip of the switch uh internally that i feel that indicates the presence of and influence of uh one of the diamonds that um uh, has come in answer to uh my invocation of of my chanting or singing of the name or the formula and of uh my my intention to give form when i begin a mask i write um the name of the epithet uh often in a configuration I'm obsessed with tetracti so if there's a way that I can arrange it into a tetractus but it doesn't have to be that there's other shapes anyway I will uh, I'll put a glyph uh with you know mer ink if I'm feeling extra special but with sharpie if I'm just like feeling pragmatic and I don't want to stop the show in order to go grab something from an altar to do it with mm-hmm. um but I will uh put this uh put the the epithet upon the mask and then start building from there and I find that when I do that, that's just one of the ways that I dedicate what I'm working on, the, the material, the medium that I'm working with, to the force that uh, is going to ensoul it, that is going to inhabit it, and ideally that is going to shape and guide the shaping of, of the mask itself. And it's, it happens more often than not. Um, when it doesn't happen, when I feel like, okay, this, you know, this one represents a satyr or a nymph or a this or a that um and uh, it's kind of like you know this was practice uh you know i don't know if i was just phoning it in or it's just not the right time or no one was available uh, but uh so that's fine and it's great and you know this was done through the um uh you know practice of my hands um and and is the result you know simple of, of simple artifice and that's fine and that's great and i have another little satyr mask that's cute but um when it goes above and beyond and suddenly starts revealing itself and i'm like okay you're you're not what i thought i was making at the beginning but i i i see that you know maybe it's someone up the chain of emanation or something whose selfhood and distinctiveness you know is uh poking out is is piercing through and is causing this mess to become something um far far more intense um than i was experience, uh, expecting or far you know more distinct and it's become something where i no longer would say of such a mask that um oh this is hecate clidocos or this is a uh, hecate nicteria or uh, rather than that i would say this is a daimon of hecate urania or this is a daimon of sure. hecate phosphore or or which um whichever it is that that comes about and because there's like obviously this is uh, it no longer is quote unquote ekati it is of ekati sure. it is uh, right. one of her di- diamonds 
And I, I found that once I switched to that understanding, it, um, it helped my work and it helped my relationship to my work. Um, sometimes I do make something that I would call like, oh, this, you know, this is the mask and it's, gonna, it's a votive mask. It serves as an icon. It's ultimately, you know, probably just going to go up on the temple wall behind the main Hecate altar or it's going to go somewhere because it it is, you know, this aspect, you know, and, and it's very much a uh, uh, high concept, but it, it's not personal at all. It's, you know, an impersonal rendition of, of you know, Hecate Ainalia, and that's beautiful and that's great, and those have their purpose. But the ones that... Um, feel special are the ones where it's obviously like this is a daimon of Hikate Inalia and this is uh, somebody who <laughs> showed up and who to whom this mask is dedicated but obviously in whom this this mask is seated you know or this is um or who is seated in this mask it, it there's a different feeling and I kind of treat them differently I treat them all you know, with, with respect as, you know, sacred objects of art, but the ones that attain obvious personhood, I'm, I'm very careful with. And, and, you know, that's, uh, they're the ones I'm, I'm likely to be talking to as I'm puttering around the, the studio. <laughs> so it's funny that leads right into something I was going to ask you. It sounds like the act of creation is a dialogue with the diamond. Yes. There's a there's a reciprocity. It sounds like where you're you're initiating the creative act, but then the daimon is entering into the creative act with you, and guiding the act of creation, so that it in turn the the created can become an appropriate um, an an appropriate um, eidolon for the spirit. A, a really, in an Egyptian terms, a ba for the daimon, who in turn is a ba for the god. Yes. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. I. I definitely understand it in those terms, and that could also just uh, be out of uh, practicality. Um, it's probably much more nuanced and complex than I can uh, understand or express. But uh, in terms of a need-to-know basis, I think um, that what you just described is what I feel I'm capable of comprehending, and probably is the extent to which I would actually need to know about it. And you know, there's the extent to which I'm sort of like a consenting instrument. Um, I feel though that I was designed like I can, you know, uh, biography back through my whole life and, and see how uh, all of the influences and all of the uh, experiences that shaped me, you know, definitely appear to all be doing it towards the fulfilling the function that I currently am. And it does feel, you know, very much like there was a high degree of intentionality around. Um, but, you know, this also could just be me making sense out of, you know, the random chaos and meaninglessness in order to feel good about myself. But it does appear that I was, you know, developed to fulfill a, a particular function and not in a I'm special way, just more, you know, because everyone I believe is, but it's just, I kind of see it that way. And I, I guess that uh, the whole concept of true will or or destiny or whatever gets into it. But I, I try to like, rather than saying it, it's my will, I rather say like saying it, it's my function because I feel that at my best is when I am, um, you know, a uh, enthusiastically consenting instrument being used by something with greater wisdom and skill than I have. Makes sense. Now it's interesting. And I think many people are unaware these days of it. 
But masking is also very much a, a an aspect of traditional magical practices, whether we're talking about um, the archaic world, whether we're talking about Africa, whether we're talking about um, European, indigenous European um, shamanism, for lack of a better word. I prefer to use that than witchcraft. Um, masking is something that is used in um, magic. And, you know, it goes back to the Greek persona, which we use for, of course, our egoistic um, egoistic construct, but really the idea of persona is because they would put these masks on on stage and become the gods that were in the play, like in an Aristophanes play or something. Literally, the mask is the persona, but then when you don the mask, you become whatever the mask is. Yeah, precisely. And th that's my understanding of it as well. And it's one of the few elements that you can, I know it's dangerous to use the phrase uh, of being universal, but um, it's one of the found so frequently in so many places as as a element in people's practice that um you could you know think of it as a, a near universal element of um ritual or of uh, ceremony as ex experienced all over the world of course there are exceptions and i am not one size fits alling or because uh, <laughs> there are always going to be more and varied uh, sure, expressions sure. of of praxis, and um, I don't want to do the um, it looks just like the thing that I do mistake. I just uh, I do happen to notice that um, it seems to be an inevitable practice that emerges if somebody is engaging in, especially in radical transformation of one's own consciousness in a group, whether that be through theater or whether that be through. You know, shamanic ceremonies or whether that be through religious processions or whether that be through um yeah dadaist happenings yeah i think that's a great way to put it that it, it happens spontaneously when you're working in a certain way um and it's and i was going to mention it earlier and, and janice said it as well you're tapping into a really traditional practices with what you're doing and and i think things are emerging for you because these are the things that have traditionally worked, or th these are the things that have traditionally been done. The processions, the the animation of statues, or in this case of masks, these are all very traditional practices. And um, and I, I love what you do. And from seeing the masks up close and in person, um, they do capture the real essence of the beings that you're trying to kind of symbolize and these are masks that are, in my opinion, museum-worthy um, pieces of art. And I really do hope for you that they do end up in, in some, some sort of museum or gallery. Maybe if there's a point at which they want to be retired. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I think they they want to be um, as part of shrines when they're not in kinetic use. True. And they want to be upon someone's face and uh, adventuring around in the world and uh, lending body. Um, I think is is where they most want to be, and uh, perhaps there's a point when uh, they want to be uh, decommissioned or retired. If uh, they don't insist upon being thrown into a bonfire, they uh, might end up in a somewhere. Maybe there'll be a um, museum of retired magical paraphernalia. <laughs> right. right. That, um, well, I'm, I'm maybe more speaking to just the overall quality and artistry. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. No, these are really spectacular pieces. 
And so a lot of a lot of your inspiration and um, your techniques, I think you, you had mentioned the Greek magical papyri earlier. I feel like you, you get a lot of inspiration from from those documents and from those yes. uh, works. How do you? I'm just curious about your general thoughts on the Greek magical papyri today, um, and maybe, or, or how you thought about it a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Has has your has your thoughts about how these things work changed dramatically? Yes, I had a period when the late period, when late antiquity, and when the, especially the Greco-Roman fusions and syncretisms. Uh, they used to be, or this was my brother's influence, you know, it was uh, just seen as like the degenerate area. Oh, this is the, you know, it decayed, the, the perfect and pristine, uh, isolate perfection of, of this signal that is, you know, the, the, the Egyptian artistic style, that which makes something recognizably Egyptian, that otherness that is also still like so pure and perfect and so beyond time yet, obviously, you know, from you know, however many thousand years ago, like that then changes when you do get that splicing with the Greek influences and Roman influences and what happened later. And that used to be interpreted as degeneracy uh, that, you know, when growing up with my brother, who was a perfectionist, you know, there was this idea like this um, once perfect thing, this once perfect signal that we had um, Egypt as Egypt, um, then intermixed with other cultures. And that was you know, seen as sort of like a, a degeneration and mm -hmm. that resulted in, and I changed that completely though. Once I realized that the fusions and the admixtures of the Egyptian deities, um, and Egyptian magical words, et cetera, during that period, suddenly agency was restored rather than it being like, oh, these humans failed to keep the gift that they were given pure and perfect and separate from the rest of the world, which was how I grew up understanding it sure. because I was seeing it through the lens of my, my brother's influence. And he was very much into the idea of, you know, so this is perfection and everything other than this is a failure to be that. Right. And I saw it that way too, because I was the little brother. I absorbed a lot of his stuff, but um, then once I realized that, you know, I'm my own type of mutant and what I do through my artwork is a form of mutation. It's, you know, translating things into the bodies or forms that they want to have now, you know, in the current place, which is not ancient Egypt at all. And um, I started seeing the, the period of late antiquity and the syncretism of it as the uh, consensual admixture and intermingling of those Neteru that wished to participate in and influence the rest of the world after the close of the era that in which you know they lived on earth when the temples were maintained by the priesthoods and when the actual animate forms of the gods were here when that stopped you know and the occupation happened there are those that quit i believe and there are those that continued quite obviously and we're like sure show me the rest of the world uh so isis goes on and becomes like a roman superstar goddess uh um, osiris becomes serapis and then serapis then kind of like you know hitchhikes uh, as jesus uh, into the the next age and there's um 
some of them wanted to to meet the world and continue. And I, I give them the agency. I don't feel that they're uh, entirely passive aliens that would die if their temple was failed to be perfectly maintained by their by their devotees. I feel like, you know, once the temples were desecrated, something definitely did. An opportun- certain opportunities, I think, de- definitely uh, left the earth at that time. Like there wasn't these, you know, well-fed, you know, centuries-old statues that had been consistently worshipped um, and, and animate statues. Um, so those, unfortunately, you know, uh, to our all, to the loss of us all, you know, were desecrated. However, that the forces behind them have other means of uh, influence and of participation in humanity's story, and they have agency. And I feel like there are those among them. You know, maybe it's a minority of them that were like, yeah, I still want to play, though. Like, I, I'm still interested in humanity. I still want to uh, advent in various forms, whether through dreams and inspirations or through actually eventually developing a new cultus in a slightly different form with a different emphasis on a different continent with people who may or may not understand my original context at all. Um, and so that's why we have, you know, Sekhmet and we have... Uh, deities now more than ever but it used to be you know a handful of them but you know busy like they have their own forming cults and they you know they are not perfect renditions by any means of the original cults and some of them are not perhaps not even recognizable as to to how um they were worshipped or what meanings they had in relationship to their devotees uh, millennia ago but there's apparently if we were to admit they have agency there is the desire to keep playing to keep uh, in in relation, to maintain the relationships to humans, to humanity and its story. And I feel that um, the syncretism that happened in the late period um, was their means to do that. And I I feel like to some extent, (laughs) you know, there, you know, it was willed, it was consented to. It wasn't just sort of like, oh no, you failed to keep your gods distinct from the interpret patio romani or whatever is from the uh getting you know folded into the idea that there's seven or 12 you know primary gods and this one is of course that one and that and it's dot 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 odin you know like mm-hmm. i mean we we want to avoid you know taking that you know at face value and and reducing them all to a paint by numbers you know where every every god that has mercurial qualities is mercury um i definitely don't want to flatten them to that extent um mm-hmm. But I don't. But I I feel that by participating in that, even though that wasn't like their original meaning and context, and and the, um, I feel though that they kind of like were able to kind of mm, piggyback upon that sort of like weird you know flattening and simplifying of everything into seven planetary gods or twelve zodiacal gods, um, and I feel like they're kind of unpacking from that and are kind of returning to their distinctiveness and and are now um we know more about them and because of the wonders of archaeology and centuries have gone by since um, people were writing about them you know as if there was really as if you know mercury exactly was hermes exactly was thoth exactly was odin like i feel like those gods are now kind of getting out of that little mercurial vehicle that they have been packed into and are now um, stretching their legs and getting busy with humanity uh, as themselves a little bit more. Um, their distinctiveness and their um, 
personal uh, divine qualities, I think those are being restored to them after them all being seen just as the mercurial current or the Venusian current. Like I feel like the the distinct deities that you know participated in those currents are now kind of um, have enough interest in them as themselves, and there's enough archaeological uh, background that has been revealed that uh, we know more about them and know more about how to approach them as beings in and of themselves um, and not just as fusions with all of the other gods that kind of have something in common or at least appeared to to the Romans. All of what I just said impacts my understanding of the PGM because the PGM is a mosaic made from many broken religions, many traditions, uh, many pantheons, many magical languages um, that had been crushed and shattered under the heel of empire. And the uh, last participants, you know, last generation to participate, you know, in those traditions, you know, were then pulling together what fragments they could and um, trying to assemble something that um, had had its center removed, you know, because God no longer obviously lived in the old temple, uh, which is, you know, now a barracks or, you know, it's no longer the context that Mm -hmm. um, was so obvious in the era of, of, you know, the temple traditions. So now as it's shifting from being, you know, a magical religion to a religious form of magic, the pieces um, were not kept separate though, that made that mosaic, all the shattered pieces of um, Judaism, of uh, the Kemetic religions, of Hellenic religions, et cetera, were, you know, were now being mixed and matched. And then suddenly people started from a, you know, high need situation, uh, with a very pragmatic lens started um, creating these beautifully polyglot shimmery uh, or chimerae. Um, the idea of creating these Frankenstein mutant uh, practices and, that included Frankenstein mutant gods that created, you know, these chimerical creations that. Um, and a lot of frankincense. Yes, exactly. Steins and Steins of Frankincense. And they um, they created these things that um, were wonderfully uh, reminiscent, you know, of the little doodles that I would make as a kid of, you know, let's you know, create this like chimerical, you know, combination of, of you know, all these different features of, of, of animal, let's say, together into a single creature. Well, that was sort of like a process happening, you know, with the gods. And so we end up with things such as the, the um, Akephalos, the headless one. And people's trying to say, well, who is it? And it's like that's the wrong question. It's 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 not who is it. It's uh, <laughs> you're. This is something that you can piece together the influences going into it, but you can try to recognize among the voces magica, among the 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 words and names by which it's invoked. But really, you just have to look at its function and and see that its um, function <laughs> is indicated, you know, by you know, the qualities that you're saying that it does, and you're mm-hmm. realizing that it's that part both of, you know, of the uh, Tetragrammaton deity, but in, also in some ways of Set and of Osiris and of all of these other names, that it's kind of them as doing a certain thing. Very nicely put. I like that. Well, also to interject, I like your point, the Frankenstein analogy, because Another name, and it's not accidental, another name for Frankenstein, the story Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. Yes. 
And Prometheus is the Titan. I hate to say, you know, Titans are gods. They're just a different race of gods. But he is the divinity, I should say, who is associated with Metis, which has to do with um, skill and craft and creativity. And he's also the shaper, the one who gave form to human beings. So he's like, you're, you know, you're engaging. So he's a demiurgic figure associated with artistry and craftsmanship and the uh, using of the divine fire in creation. And so your analogy is actually apt because you're using that same formative fire of Ta or Hephaestus or Prometheus to produce these these sort of aggregate eidolons. Yes, I, I completely agree. And the idea of um, how they, they emerge, how they kind of like advent among us, the the work that you're you know uh, referring to now you know the modern Prometheus or you know Frankenstein you know was a great example of that of how the the themes of of creation and of you know how how do you God you know how what constitutes you know the the form of of a, of a human or you know is is the human body and is having a, a human body available um, what makes it you know a human being and what is that something you know what is the fire of prometheus that that sh- changes it from being a collection of organs into being a a living creature a, that ha- that is or has a self and similar with you know the cobbling together of these names and of these these words and of these composite deities you're you know they're the more than the sum of their parts there's kind of putting together sometimes in, in some of the uh, invocations, you know, you'll have several different languages, sometimes even in the same, um, you know, just a passage, you know, which, which is thought of as, as even like a single name, you know, of, of like, you know, a seven, seven word formula, like the Moscali Moscello, and you're trying to like piece together, like, where did this come from? Where did that? And you're like, well, that's, that's Egyptian, but it's right after that, that's recognizably Greek. And you see that these pieces of fragments of different traditions that have come together, something then happens with some of them, not all of them, but with some of them, then it does get animated, it gets ensouled, it gets inhabited. For some reason, that fire of Prometheus, that you know, inspiring, you know, enthusiasmos that animates and, and brings something into life and into self, uh, strikes it somehow. And so you'll have, you know, uh, a string of words. Which, if you were to just analyze them in terms of what language is this from, what's it trying to say, it's dead and broken. It's like, no, this is just like some like uh, you know degenerate, uh, broken several languages that someone tried to put together because I guess they were trying to imitate magic words that they saw someone say. You know, you could look at it that way, and 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 in that context, it's dead or broken or degenerate. But when you realize that no, those things were put together um, from several different traditions, and they were put together in such a way that the, the lightning bolt came like the the animating fire of prometheus that then made it like an obvious something something important enough that it, it's like you have people then using it and copying it and passing it around and experimenting with it and it becomes like a, a thing in itself rather than just like an attempt to say a particular hebrew prayer that then got some greek added and then um you know an egyptian word for good measure rather than that it's no longer those parts um, it is now when you have, you know, those seven words in a row or when you have that, 
you know, uh, shape um, or even something that approximates it, it, it develops its own momentum and it kind of develops its own, uh, you know, faith or its own influence. Um, and that's the thing that about it that was so fascinating to me with seeing the kind of broken, multilingual, multi-religious, multicultural, and also not good examples of, you know, in their original context, you know, the the, the Greeks in the wrong, um, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't even work if you were to try to like take the words and, and try to make them work. It's like they're broken examples of the, of their own languages. And you look at that, and then you realize that these are the words, you know, these are the words that you shouldn't change. These are the nomina barbara. It, it is no longer Greek. It's no longer Egyptian. It's no longer Hebrew. Um, it, the misspellings keep them. <laughs> it is it is something that that worked. It's something that became a thing in itself. It's no longer just fragments of other things. And whatever that quality of life is that um, you know is imparted to a body to make it you know not just like a, a random assembly of parts, but to make it a self. Um, that somehow that quality was imparted to these phrases. And that makes me relate to them because I'm not from Egypt. I'm not from Greece. I'm not from Rome. I'm not Jewish. Like I really don't have any uh, permission, I guess, to claim as my tradition, these traditions. And so I don't, but the broken, um, shattered, and then reconstituted, reconstructed, resurrected, chimera, mutant form of of magical words that we find in the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri are something that I feel that I can lay claim of relation to. I, I also am, you know, a broken polyglot, you know, Frankenstein thing that was kind of sewn together out of the remnants of several dying cultures. You know, I, I very much relate to uh, the, the parentage of, of the PGM and of the words in it and the rights in it, because I, our time rhymes with that time. You know, we also are at a information explosion under the heel of empire where people are forced to come to terms with each other and no one, you know, has a super obviously direct line of succession anymore. Um, and in that confusion, there's like an incredible fertility that uh, the cross pollinations of unexpected combinations, unexpected mergers and that lead to mutations um some of which you know maybe even if it is like a very small number are viable and you know uh take on that that flame of life and become things in themselves and and those things in themselves are new traditions you know if they survive the, the hybrid polyglot that you're talking about the sort of esoteric esperanto is in itself a reversion of the mythical fall of the tab Tower of Babel and the, uh, the 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 fractioning of the primordial language into uh, partial partial you know pieces, and that in turn is a analogical representation of the descent from the one into the many. And so, by the reconstitution of the primordial language through art through Promethean artifice we can re-enter into a sympathia with the logos hieraticos and uh, and and create the enlinkment that enables the transmission of knowledge power and information from the celestial to into the material and then back again i agree and 
I, I see it also as someone acting out the myth of the uh, severing and scattering of the members of the body of Osiris, where uh, whether or not it is like a, a root language that is then you know fragmented and then kind of scattered forth and then gradually gathered back together and reanimated like a Frankenstein, you have also like between them, like the, the, the scattering itself and the creation of a distance between these fragments of a tradition or of a language or of a people. But then as it gathers back together, between those fragments, you then have, you know, these shorelines, these high energy zones um, where change and magic is possible, these liminal spaces in between the joints of the severed and scattered body of whether that was, you know, the body of, of magic itself as a tradition, or whether it's uh, the body of, you know, the, the, the culture that these things all came from. But I, even if there wasn't like a, a single you know, source code or source religion for them or source language for them. Um, it is kind of the, I get most uh, turned on by the the interstitial spaces between them. You know, when they are kind of brought back together, there's kind of the, uh, the liminal, uh, the little synapse in between the individual fragments. I, I feel like that is a something. It's not just a, a, a gap or an absence, you know, of of them being in union. It's not just, you know, a little hairline's distance between the pieces. That's actually kind of where the magic happens. And so, for them to be varied, to be different, and to um, to be shattered and broken, is in my relationship, in my own particular uninitiated, you know, just simple person playing with 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 paper dolls understanding of the PGM, the brokenness of it is its source of its magic. And the uh the uh the varied nature of it, the the fact that um there are very few rites that you can point to and say this is exclusively Egyptian or this is exclusively Greek or this is you know a perfect rendition of something that came from the rites of Eleusis or or such like it's it's having it's almost like for there to be like a you know grand climactic battery of uh of holy names you know in the climax of a spell it's like if if it's all <laughs> in one language or another it's that's almost kind of like a, a mark against it now for because it's like it is having it be polyglot for makes it uh something that then I can relate to and that I feel that uh, I I can pronounce those words <laughs> because it's like, this isn't um, me uh, uh, pronouncing something that was intended for someone who's, you know, very much, you know, of a time and place. And, and that is an intimate, you know, a, a passage of intimate prayer between someone and their God within an intact religion. Um, it's not that it's uh, rather than me, you know, LARPing, as someone who is Jewish or, or someone who is an ancient uh, citizen of Kim, instead, it's uh, when I see that there is that uh, broken and reassembled um, quality to a spell, I feel the connection and I feel then that I can step into it. And I feel that then I can in, uh, freely uh, uh, invoke it and include it in, into my work. And as I do that, those fragments that the, uh, of the magical voices that have agency, that are animate, um, they definitely begin to operate even outside of the context of, of, the, of a particular spell. 
I find that there are, you know, some of the phrases, if you just intoned those, you know, mantra-like, or if you have the the luxury of being able to just be very weird out loud for 24 hours a day, which I, which is a, a blessed situation that I found myself in over the last few years, which is when everything really took off, was I found that if I, while I'm working in the studio, can just uh, intone some of these names and words, you know, all day long, there's something that can happen. And uh, they, outside of the context of, oh, I am doing a spell, and it towards the end, it says, um, and I see them that way. Like, when it's no longer like that, but when you just take those two words, let's say, and just start singing them to yourself out loud um, as you're doing the things, there's something special that happens, and you get to meet them. Yeah, and it begs the question, how how was this being done? Um by people in a certain time and in a, of a certain place um were they just reading it off the page like a lot of us assumed um or you know some people assume or was there something else going on like you're saying um a little bit more of a, a lived expression or you know because we really i mean let's be real we really don't know how this stuff was performed and we're kind of piecing it together to the best of our ability and i think your trial and error methodology is is probably one of the best for kind of making the best stab at at maybe what was being done. You know what I mean? Well, if you if you do it enough, mm-hmm. um, you know patterns emerge. You know rhythms and meters mm-hmm. and cadences emerge, and um, also like how those how they want to ex- be expressed now begins to emerge like um not just in different ways to do uh vocally with them different melodies or tunes if you're singing them but also um translating them into written form drawn form sculpted form and eventually uh it's the hot ones are the ones that are like very very animate with much agency and that really seem to want to participate in the shaping of the world that we live in now they um want to let's say i guess i should put quotes around want um they appear to me uh in my own private practice and experience to desire to be translated into as many many media as possible to be interpreted not just in terms of here's all the different ways to sing it or say it or shout it or whisper it or here's all the ways to calligraphy it or to draw it uh, but it then goes into here is the interpretation of this hymn into the kinetic form, into a dance, or into a solemn series of linked gestures, <laughs> if you don't want to call it a dance, um, based upon the vowels. And so following the sequence of the directions attributed in PGM 13 to the vowels of, of a hymn, or at least of a divine name or series of names, can then create all that you need to have a uh, directionally oriented kinetic expression of the hymn or of, of the litany of names or whatever it is that you're intoning. And from there, then how does it become olfactory? Well, let's take the seven cents of the planets also included in PGM 13 or in the eighth book of Moses and um, create sense where you take the vowels of a magical word and you put in one drop of one of the seven planetary uh, essences or oils or scents 
perfumes according to as they appear in it. So Oblanoth and Alba would just be <laughs> six drops of myrrh. Okay, so that's not as exciting. But once you get to Akramakamari, it is now five drops of myrrh, one drop of frankincense. When you get to Abraminto, you now have frankincense and myrrh. You now also have cassia and storax. And you can take it then from there uh, with uh, the addition of planetary scents according to the vowels in proportion. So I have a little rack of perfume bottles in which there is the olfactory interpretation of the Vocius Magica that I work with so that I can then use these as offerings or to dress candles with or to anoint myself with before doing a ritual that is using those words. Mm. That ritual might include a little dance or kinetic interpretation of the prayer based upon the vowels once again and the direction that those vowels correlate to. And so they give us the instructions if we want to then um, come up with these things that do not appear in the PGM. Like this is an idea that I kind of riffed on and it just became self-proving in terms of uh, uh, pragmatically speaking and uh, formed a system that is not in the PGM. I, I would not publish a little book that says, this is the PGM system of kinetic prayer, mm-hmm. um, or this is the PGM system of, of perfumery, because it's not. It's, uh, it started with, a, with some attributions in PGM 13 and um, got encouraged as I then pulled on that thread, and then it resulted in something that I enjoy and that adds to my own ritual praxis and that I hope to um, include in the externalization of my own ritual praxis into the form of community celebration through these little parades. Um, so the instances, you know, the, the, the things that uh, we would be anointing ourselves with, the instances that we'd be burning, and some of the, the factors of, you know, the route, let's say, of the procession itself can be determined in part by the words that we'll be chanting during it. So you have it, the uh, advent or appearance of the formula of a magical word now in the realm of scent, in the realm of direction of or kinetic expression of, of procession, as well as in the form of the masks and vestments that the people would be wearing or the banners that they'll be waving and what they'll be chanting. So gradually more and more of the senses and more and more of the realms that the senses pertain to are being incorporated in the expression of and the celebration of these magical words and the spirits that write on them. And so that's, uh, I feel, uh, where the, um, the magic side and the art side of what I do meet is the fact that uh, it turns out that art is merely a vehicle of magical expression. Art is simply the, um, the mechanism whereby certain forces are made to appear, mm-hmm. except uh, it's, I'm not conjuring them in a circle such that there's faces appearing in the smoke. Um, I'm, I'm making faces for them. It's, they want to, it's, uh, it's no longer a matter of me presuming to conjure for my own enjoyment and at my own command, a spirit into a circle. Uh, it is more like I have been conjured into the service <laughs> of the spirits who want to appear. And uh, they do want to have full physical appearance. Um, here in, in the world that we live in. And uh, my job is to give them that. And I give them that by um, creating suitable masks and vestments 
suitable expressions, kinetically uh, gesture and dance, suitable sense. And eventually, you know, the realm of food <laughs> will find their, um, the, we'll, we'll find the cookbook of the PGM and we'll uh, have a way for them to be uh, uh, culinarily experienced. And basically it's uh, through, through craft, giving them more and more expression and embodiment through all of the things that uh, I make. And it gives, on the other side of that equation, humans, uh, those of us um, who are attending and participating in these rites, we get to experience more and more of them. And it just kind of draws us all closer together. Like I, I, I find that as a very mutually reciprocal, mutually beneficial agreement and arrangement and relationship that can be cultivated by doing this, it's uh, certainly revolutionized my life. Although, um, from someone looking from the outside, um, I also do appear to kind of like live a life that could be interpreted as like a prolonged psychotic break um, <laughs> because I spend most of my time, you know, singing or talking to empty rooms while working on making masks for spirits. Well, just say you're an artist and that that's kind of a, that covers you. I, I live in the city where that's appropriate behavior and it's expected for someone like me. So <laughs> kind of following along this conversation, um, being that in Greco-Roman Egypt, um, the literacy rate was extremely low. And so that the people putting these works together were um, a, I guess you could say a minority of, of intellectuals or practitioners. Um, I think the common understanding is that these were priests for the most part, um, which would which would indicate that there was a significant level of training that went on and um, initiation and whatnot and for you i know you've you've been doing these things for decades and you live this life day in and day out 24 7 i believe like this is on your mind for the most part but generally speaking because the pgm is you know you can find it at barnes and noble can anyone in your opinion just pick up the pgm and just start immediately working it um, with with none of the prerequisites? Or what kind of prerequisites would you say are necessary, if any? A, um, a way that I describe my understanding of what you're asking yeah. about is um, not everyone's gay. Everyone has different kinks. Everyone has different um, sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. And everyone can, anyone can do all types of things. You can do all types of things. Um, do you want to? Would you feel mut anything mutual from it? Would it be good for you and the other party? I don't know. That depends on your unique internal chemistry. That is your mystery. You know, that is that's your yeah. thing. Um, similarly, with magic, if you were to see magic as referring to um, how you energetically, emotionally, intimately, essentially relate to other, to another, to others. Mm -hmm. Uh, everyone has different kinks. So, you know, maybe it's about a single paradros that you have a long-term committed relationship with, and that's the goal of it. Mm -hmm. Well, there are spells for that in the PGM that tell you, well, here's the protocols. And if you do this right, you don't have to do anything else, like just to get rid of the book. <laughs> like if you do this, and there's a few of them actually 
you know, for meeting your daimon or for, you know, acquiring a paradros or, you know, the initiation in the eighth book of Moses, you know, it's really about, um, you know, receiving the word of your God. And now you're, you're a magos, like you only need that from now on. Um, and that's, you know, very much describing a one-on-one um, long-term committed relationship. Your significant other is this paradros or daimon or God, however it's experienced, but it's, it's, um, that's the one for you. And that's the one through whom you do the magic. If you are wired for long-term committed relationship, um, if you're wired to have a single significant other, um, that's there for you. And here's a set of, you know, here's how to do. And if you are genuinely wired that way, I believe that if you engage that, you know, single-mindedly, um, you will then make that connection and have that relationship. There's also a lot of spells in the PGM that appear to be very much not like that. They're, you know, how to, you know, it starts with how to acquire the temporary paradros um, that will help you to do just this one spell. And that's, you know, when you get to the, you know, go to the grave of someone who died violently and do this thing. And it's because you're temporarily employing one of the restless dead for the purpose of your magic. And if you're the type of person who can do that and can have all of these one night stands with a wide variety of rough trade or just different spirits that are, you know, not your paradros, not not the single uh, God sent spirit who is there for you, but are just sort of like, well, you look like you're not doing anything and you look hungry. So I'm going to give you this and I want you to um, bother that person for me and, uh, and step back. I have a phylactery, but just do this thing and I'll, you know, I'll take care of, you know, so. Those are like one-off, single-serving companionship type relationships, uh-huh. and you might have a knack for that. I don't think most people do, um, because you know, uh, most people aren't wanting necessarily to seek out you know violently dead people and and try to get their their spirits to work for them. Um, so, but some people have that as part of their persuasion, and so I feel like those people who are oriented in that way can form and profit from that type of relationship, but that's not everybody. And then there are some spells that seem to be more like, do something that references and rhymes with one of the gods in this myth that you obviously know because you grew up with this. And so you do like a little spell and it has a charm or like a little historiola uh, as part of it. And that's another type of uh, way to work this magic. And I think a lot of it is based on the assumption at least for charms, are these little historiola spells. Um, you know, it's something you grew up with. It's something that's just baked mm-hmm. in. And so if that's the case for you, or, or if you have reached a point in your life where you're so familiar with these myth cycles and they have moved you and, and, and you know, informed your life to the point where it feels like it's baked in, um, then those could be the part of it that works for you. There's so many different types of operation referenced in the PGM. And I think that they appeal to a wide variety of different people. I think that they were compiled from things, operations that would be used for, you know, a wide variety of of people in terms of their class and their particular religious persuasion and their, their own temperament. And some things would work for some, some things would work for another. I don't think that there is one person who did all of the different operations that we have recorded in the body of uh, of uh, notes that we call the PGM, um, I think they were just kind of gathering as much as they could because they were aware of how much was dying and going out of existence. 
and they were aware that um, even as knowledge was being hoarded in in the libraries of Alexandria, um, that there was a lot that was going to be just, you know, a lot of these initiatory lineages and a lot of these uh, sacred temple libraries, all these things were going extinct. (laughs) And so I think people were just grabbing as many fragments as they could from the shattered traditions around them. And some of them were relevant, you know, to the person uh, who was writing it down. Um, you'll have them have notes of, you know, uh, this this is good or has been done nine times or whatever in the, in the notes. And then some of them, I think, are just like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> here's a here's a, a spell to do that thing that the one immediately above it does, except this one <laughs> is, you know, if, if they're Christian, use this one instead. Right. You know, you'll you'll we'll we'll do the same um you know, gradual erasure of uh of a magical word to get rid of their fever but we're going to do it in the name of Jesus in this case cuz there's these things called christians now and so we're going to we're going to like create spells that appeal in, to them cuz they don't like to have uh non-christian gods mentioned let me focus in and, and give you a, a quick scenario cuz i think your thought process is fascinating and I, I love your 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 perspective on these things so do you think there's any difference in say a fully initiated Egyptian priest drawing uh, a, a, a phylactery with all the associated magic, the magical words. Um, do you think there's any difference between that individual creating that and an uninitiated lay person doing the same thing? Is it just as effective, in your opinion? I don't think that it is identical. I, I think that the role of the dice. I think that um, it's. Uh, I kind of see it as one of the things you can try is, <laughs> you know, we we know, you know, what the word was that people said whenever, you know, in in the rites of, uh, let's say, you know, whatever initiate a mystery school they were a part of, and uh, we have it passed down because someone who was defrocked decided that, you know, uh, um, vowels be damned. I'm going to um, pass on my my word that I'm supposed to give if I'm ever uh, confronted with a punishing spirit or whatever, I'm gonna, you know, I know that we're supposed to say this thing, and, uh, and it's from one of the one of the rites. But um, I'm just gonna record it anyway because, uh, you know, that school may or may not even be available anymore because a lot of these um, the initiatory things were lineages were broken, and so then you have the question of, um, so from a broken tradition, do do the gods or the forces of a tradition, the temple of which has been turned into barracks? Um, do they mind as much if one of the uninitiates call upon their name? Perhaps when you had like an entire like city of initiate priests who were those who had the proprietary, the intellectual property of that deity's names and signs. And, you know, it would be woe unto those who are not initiate who would uh, call upon these or use these signs, etc. But then things changed in that... Um, suddenly that city of initiates is no longer there. In fact, maybe that name or that aspect of that god is only existing in human memory and practice in the form of a name that you call on as part of a phylactery or as, or as part of a protection charm in, a, you know, in a, as a footnote in a spell in the PGM. Or it's, uh, I think that um, unless that uh, divine power you know, was kind of done, with um participating with with humanity you know and, and it was just like okay temples are gone i'm just gonna i'm gonna go dead but if it you know had went, wished to persist and to continue participating 
I would think that it would be um, it would like first people to call upon it, even though it's definitely not from the point of view as an initiate priest saying, "Hey, I'm one of yours. Protect me," because you know I'm, I am part of the order that serves you exclusively, and that you know shaves off my body hair and, and washes four times a day. Rather than that, it's now I'm calling upon this name in need and uh, with faith and um, this is, you know, maybe the only time in centuries that that name has been called on in need and with faith. Yeah. And I feel that there's something that responds to that and replies to that. Okay. And that, um, and that uh, doesn't see it as uh, an insult. Sure. No, nicely put. I'm coming at it from, the reason I asked is because I was thinking of mantra practice in Buddhism and mantra are used for quote unquote magical effects or blessings in, in a lot of places and times um but it's thought that you the man the mantra won't work for you unless you have a strong actual practice like you are mm -hmm. you are participating in precepts you have made vows you are doing all the things and that's what makes the mantra um available to you or able to to work so to speak you know what i mean so that's kind of the prerequisite that i was kind of thinking that maybe the, mm. the priests would have like a practice that that enabled them to kind of tune in to that Certainly. power. You know what I mean? I believe that once you get through the novelty, so so first off, there's like there's going to be like uh, once you get once you just start, even before you get to the foothills of of actual integrated praxis with any of these, you um you kind of have like the plane of novelty where these are um exotic mm -hmm. magical ancient names that uh you have not yourself ever pronounced out loud or written as a charm and there is a certain uh, uh flair that comes with something being this is the first time that you're doing it and and it feels so magical and and there's a something mm -hmm. and that something that that you know spark is uh definitely can push the needle over to the successful side yeah. of the spectrum um and it does it once or it does it like maybe a few times and then as soon as things are familiar you now realize that um having expended the thrill you can either find something else to thrill yourself with uh -huh. or you can then realize like oh like there's a relationship I'm supposed to cultivate with this if I want to go further okay. with it. Like uh, once again, to go back to the um, relationship metaphor. Yeah. You, you realize like now there's, there's an actual, you know, and, and then how do you do that? Do you, you know, incorporate it into a daily ritual or do you give yourself, you know, a, a certain number of repetitions or a certain number of hours singing it to enliven mm -hmm. it, to warm it up or to integrate it um, to, um, animate it as part of your magical body and then that really depends on you know what influences you have upon you um, what guidance you might receive from those diamonds that you are already in touch with or that want to be in touch with you or what you have found to be effective you know it's without transplanting s systems to systems um, haphazardly <laughs> although I, I you know just spent the last few hours talking about how um a big what a big fan of the syncretism i am but also um <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean to there's there are so many ways to do it wrong and i've done most of the ways to do it wrong and i i, I know that i will do it wrong the rest of the ways you can do it wrong in the future i'm not saying that <laughs> i'm not it's i 
Uh, if there's one thing I'm good at, it's at doing it wrong. But um, <laughs> on the from doing it wrong so many times, I have found that you know there are ways where you can transpose. Like oh, like you know there is you know upon receiving of a, a mantra, there is a period during which you you bring it to life in your life through a uh, focused um, marathon of repetition. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of do a thing with it. And that I have found um, is not directly applicable, but is indirectly ap- applicable to this. Because I use things yeah. like that when I am taking a word and am bringing it into my life. I um, will chant it. Um, sometimes formally, like, you know, I'm going to, like, I'll make a, a prayer necklace for it and of, you know, a pr- suitable number and we'll, you know, we'll use that for X number of days or whatever. And I'll do it something that looks a little bit r- at least recognizable to, to formal mantra practice with it. Although I do not call mm-hmm. it that. Um, but yeah. I, uh, sometimes it takes the form of, um, I just sing it and or speak it out loud in as many different ways as I can until I kind of settle on a way that it wants to be said and a way that it wants to be sung. And I do that. And once again, I have the luxury of um, being able to be out loud um, about this type of thing because, yeah, there's a place where I'm able to do it and I'm usually not around people. And um, I spent, you know, once these things were really coming to life to me, I, you know, was in that place you know, like like a whole winter for days on end, just singing and um, reciting and intoning uh, these words. And they, through that process of being present in the atmosphere around me by being um, enacted or by being um, created anew uh, again and again, by being made, they then inhabiting, inhabiting the space around me could then take on uh, a little bit more agency directing how it is that they wanted to be expressed. And so they came alive. They became uh, more dense and they attracted, you know, the corresponding spirits, I think that answer to them or uh, that um, compose them or that write on them, however it works. And then that started a process where, Oh, obviously the next thing is I'm now doing this. And uh, suddenly I would find like, oh, there's a medium through which this particular word wants to be expressed. Uh, I want to express this word in the form of, you know, I want to do it kinetically, or I want to do it in the form of a, um, you know, of a mask, or I want to do it in the form of a wood burning, or depending. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that kind of go into the medium and, uh, through which they're expressed, the material, and then how and why. And that kind of all depends on, you know, what time of year it is and uh, what's going on with me at the moment and also what the what the word is that wants to be expressed that way. Okay. So would you say that that a devotional practice, because a lot of this sounds like sort of devotional practice, um, devotional practice, including offerings and, and things like that, um, creates the atmosphere where this is more viable as, as far as I find that to be the case yeah. in my own practice. Yeah. However, my own practice is able to continue because evidently like they, or at least someone wants it to, because I have been enabled to do things the way I do it. Um, because it's incredibly inefficient and way overcomplicated. Like I, <laughs> I do not hold myself up as an example of how to find a modern expression of the praxis of the PGM. I'm, I'm mostly a series of I warnings. Do. I'm sort of like, 
don't do it this way because you'll end up like that guy. And by that guy, I'm, I mean me. I'm holding you up as the example. <laughs> oh, come on. I would not wish this on anybody. Um, no, it's, uh, <laughs> may I interject? May, may I jump in for a minute? When you're doing the, I think Voce's magic is maybe a little bit better than Nomina Barbara because they're not unintelligible names. We can we can look at them and with an understanding of the Egyptian language, Sumerian, um, Greek, Hebrew, we can we can at this point a person with a sort of you know basic basic understanding of those languages can identify a lot of a lot of what they mean. When you're saying them though, and you're repeating them, I have a few considerations I want to ask you about. Number one, when you're repeating a a, uh, a formula, say like the Maskelly formula or the um, the nine the net you know the ninety nine name or or the Harpon Knufi formula, when you're repeating it over and over again, do you experience shifts in consciousness? Have you had any visionary experiences? Have you any have you had any dreams or theophanies triggered by um, the consistent use of this, where you're internalizing these voces magicae much like a mantra is internalized to the point where, I mean, I imagine you're probably sometimes just unintentionally even dreaming these words. That's the first question. Okay, they definitely, so they they do come about, and visions happen in the form of, uh, it happens through materializing in the mundane world, in that my life gets adjusted towards the direction I'm supposed to go um, and the things that I am making become possible, like the resources and opportunities to create start being attracted to me. And then in the making itself, they emerge and I see things with my physical eyes because there's now an object that is now reflecting. That is the epiphany. And so um, I can get uh, ideas or inspirations and like a, a little, you know, inrush of enthusiasm and the motivation to to do certain things. They don't show as they show up as freestanding visions. I don't see like a you know luminous form that um, I then copy when I make the the image. It's more like I I know that I am to make an image. I'm able to make the image. The resources and the opportunity to make the image come about. And uh, the compulsion um, is there so that it's sort of like, yes, I did sign up for this, but also we're now at the point where, um, you know, I've been awake so many days working on this, you know, it becomes like that sort of compulsive type of thing. But then it, um, and then it appears and then it's like, wow, you are so much more than what I could have myself imagined and, and fabricated. Um, I, I'm shocked and amazed and euphoric to see this emerge from my hands. And that is the epiphany of the God. And the there was the inspiration to do it. Um, there was like a thumb thumbnail image, perhaps, of, of kind of what it was supposed to be. But it didn't like show up as a freestanding, luminous, you know, interior form that I'm referencing and making what I'm making. It's like I see it for the first time as it emerges from my hands, um, from the mask are the material that I'm working on. And, you know, when it's shocking, when I'm both terrified and also in love with it, um, is how I know it's an epiphany of the God. And um, 
and and that does happen. I mean, that is that it's kind of like the those are the climactic moments that punctuate my life, and then the rest of my life is like doing <laughs> doing the busy work to get to the point where that can happen. And um, so yeah, that is how they appear to me. I uh, I sleep very irregularly, and so my dreams are no longer like as much a factor of my life as they once were. Um, they uh, I used to have like kind of like a uh, a very vivid dream life, but um, that was when my circadian rhythms were very different than they are now. And so I experience the appearance of the gods through the actions of my hands now. And they, they appear as they are made, but it's, uh, it's kind of, so taking uh, the Egyptian word for to make or to do, um, so you have Ari or Eri, uh, which was, you know, the I hieroglyph. And then you have the, you know, Furi or the Kefir hieroglyph to, to become. I like to think that what I do is to combine that. You have the I and the scarab or, or you know, um, Furieri, which would be like, I make by becoming. And that sort of is the formula that I pursue creatively is to make become rather than make believe. It's like, yes, this is all make believe, but to me it's make become. And that is uh, to, to craft the forms whereby the gods, um, become are the, the images of the gods become or i craft the forms whereby we can become the vehicles or eidolons of the gods in the context of ritual and celebratory procession and that's how they appear to me it's it's kind of um it's very it has to be sensible to the senses um i'm not very magically gifted in that way like a, a lot of uh the results of of doing an invocation to to try to receive a vision, um, my conscious mind rarely receives. Even though I spend the time sitting there, you know, silently in the dark <laughs> to scry or to receive the vision, um, it's not my conscious mind that receives it. If I do that thing to receive the vision, it still happens, but um, it doesn't happen such that I looking, you know, into a you know glass or dish or um, with my eyes closed usually do not see like a luminous image of of the spirit or diamond or, or god or whatever it's more like i do that and i receive the ideas of what i need to be doing next or even if i don't receive the ideas of what i need to be doing next i find myself still doing it um the next day and i find my ability to do it kind of miraculously present um, i find that i attract things that they want or that it appears to me it appears to me that i attract the things that they want people bestow jewelry collections upon me and i find among the jewelry collections beautiful images greater than i could imagine or fabricate um beautiful tokens or icons or or uh sigils of the gods that i'm currently invoking um so when when i was really in the honeymoon phase of my devotions to Aphrodite and was, you know, doing a, uh, a period of, uh, of daily devotions to her at the climax of that. So a client of mine then kind of bestowed upon me or bequeathed to me their jewelry collection. And it was like, you know, it was just like high grade, uh, costume jewelry. So it's not like diamonds or anything, but it was like very beautiful, very precious costume jewelry, you know, all of which would be absolutely appropriate for what I do, which is I make costumes and masks. And among them was an image, this just gorgeous, just shockingly beautiful image 
of um, carved into shell of this, you know, profile of a woman that was so obviously Venus, but was so uh, of such taste and was so classy and was so gorgeous and amazing. And it became like the, the actual icon or seat of Venus now on my Venus altar. And it, you know, that, you know, was just, I didn't seek that out. I wasn't looking for a, a, a form for her to in, invest herself into. It's just that by invoking her for a period of time at the climax, suddenly there is a materialization in the form of a sh- carved shell brooch that a um, was bestowed upon me as part of a jewelry collection that is now being incorporated into the masks. You know, the the various brooches and and things from that collection become incorporated into the masks that I make as kind of like seats for spirits. And um, that particular brooch, you know, is incorporated into my Venus altar kind of as if I were to locate her, so to speak, anywhere in the altar. Although, of course, I have, you know, an, an image of her that I adore and adorn. But um, next to it is a brooch that is, in my opinion, kind of the form that she chose for me and appeared to me in that. And so I venerate that as well. And so for me, that's an epiphany of Mm -hmm. Venus and I treat it as such. And it has that factor of the timing, which is it showed up, you know, unbidden. It just showed up like, Oh, wow, this is, (laughs) this is a pleasant surprise, you know, uh, towards the peak of a, of a period of devotions of ritual invocations and, and devotions. And it is, uh, it's more than what I could imagine. It's uh, it has that the extra something that is it's yeah. it's not just me asking for something and getting it. It's me doing devotions and then there being an epiphany uh, at the climax of those devotions, and that epiphany being something more than what I could imagine, more than what I could ask mm-hmm. for. And that for me is the stamp of godhood upon it that it showed up in that. And so I get things like that, but it didn't show up in the form of me having, you know, an image in my mind. Um, I feel like the particular uh, configuration of senses and qualities and abilities that I am is like, I'm just made (laughs) designed to do certain thing. And I do that thing. And I would like to be a more, you know, well-rounded person. And I do work towards developing some of the, you know, vestigial, senses and faculties and uh, trying to ameliorate some of the excess uh, elements that I have. But um, it also turns out that um, I don't think I was really meant to be like a, you know, perfectly balanced, uh, well-rounded person. I was meant to be the type of person that does this thing that I do all the time. And I'm given the ability to do that and the resources and and, and opportunity to do that. Uh, And I'm very grateful for that, but it also means <laughs> I'm just I'm actually becoming uh, more imbalanced in particular ways because I'm leaning into my talents, but my talents are uh, mostly based on and derived from imbalances, uh, and so it it results in kind of becoming more and more self alienated as I realize like I have more work to do, I have more in queue. Of of diamondists that want form, that want embodiment, then I can in this lifetime actually fulfill. And I haven't worked out a reasonable way to moderate the flow of inspiration and enthusiasm such that I can do um, things other than 
um, work or recover from working. Um, so, so there's that. Let that be a warning to you. <laughs> it um, it's sort of like um, like I haven't watched TV in like two years. Like I, it just it's not because I'm against it. I just I I don't have a moment to sit down, much less watch something. Like <laughs> I, you know, I if I'm awake, I'm working towards one or another project, and so. Let's not be mistaken. I mean, you enjoy this. Work I enjoy, as well. It's the only thing that I do enjoy, though. I mean, it's the thing is, I'm doing the thing that makes me happy. It's just like it, it makes me happy in a, a rather alienated and uh, peculiar mm. way that also um, that also exacerbates my existing uh, systemic imbalances. So, so there's mm -hmm. that. Like, I'm aware enough of the fact of like um, knowing that I, I have to find ways to to self balance or to like you know do things like I. Uh, but I find it's by expanding the scope of my work, not by contracting it. For example, by considering where I live, you know, to to be at least in my own private phantasmal reality, the temple grounds. Um, that means I incorporate yard work and gardening into what I do devotionally as a keeper of a temple, and so yeah. that gets me outside. That gets me in the sunlight. That gets me doing physical work that doesn't involve, you know, holding a Dremel or a paintbrush or a glue gun or scissors. Um, and it, it, it gets me, you know, doing something more than just sitting in a studio or in a temple, either doing invocations or doing the creative work that materializes the resulting enthusiasm of those invocations. And although that loop is the primary thing of my life, which is, you know, uh, go upstairs to the temple, invoke, 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 change out of robes, come downstairs to the workshop, uh, craft 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 and that's how i kind of fulfill the will so to speak of uh you know invoke receive vision execute vision uh polish the materialization of the vision use that materialized uh item in the next round of invocations and continue following the oroboros of uh self-feeding creative inspiration onward forever until your body dies and <laughs> there's look there there are worse things i'm this not is... i'm not complaining i just uh, i know i know <laughs> I, I verbalize like that i'm aware of of the uh imbalances uh associated i love the awareness just yeah. just because once you stop being aware of it you you that's when you then become the, the, the demiurge trapped in a solipsistic loop and that's when you become right. someone who's feverishly you know trying to get someone's attention and you go over to them and they're showing you a napkin with a cabalistic equation sharpied onto it with a bunch of exclamation <laughs> points and they knowingly <laughs> nod at you because you obviously you get it and you don't but you nod <laughs> as well and then you you know there but for the grace of god go i and uh so i i verbalize uh the uh the the systemic uh dysfunctions that i notice within myself for the sake of not um losing track of them and falling into that solipsistic loop. The, uh, perfect, perfect. The private hell of IMI. So, Joseph, um, I think we're going on like two and a half hours at this point. Oh, goodness. Which <laughs> is a, I, think, I think is a record for us. So I, I don't want to forget this piece. Um, so you do make vestments. You do, do make all sorts of uh, tabards and, and banners and uh, along with your masks. And you do provide these to the public for sale. Where can people find this so artwork? I do have an Etsy shop, and the okay. name of it is The Arunaverse. And um, I'll get that to you so that you can include it in the show notes. And that is where you can find some of the things that I make. And it's mostly, you know, temple wear type stuff. 
I make these things originally for my own use. And then mm -hmm. I have the screens and I'm like, oh, I can make more of these <laughs> because it's like I use screen printing. And so, you know, doing like the planetary sequence of the seven planetary deities and uh, and other, you know, temple crafting type themes. I make those. And once they're on screen, I can continue making them and then incorporate them into either my own rituals and processions or others can do the same with theirs. And then it the result of selling them is that it then just feeds immediately back into the temple and allows me to then create more things for the processions and for the uh, ever evolving chapels here. So I don't want to, I don't want to open a can of worms, but do you, are you open to accepting like commissions yes. for mask making? Okay. I am. And um, yeah, so you can find me with um, the Universe. There's the Universe on Facebook um, is a, a interface, and then there's the Universe on Etsy is another one. Um, both of those are kind of my mercantile hubs, and then there is um, uh, Hecantharos is where that you can find on Facebook, and then also you can find on Patreon, and that is like about like what I'm doing with the processions, and so it is Hecantharos, and like if you want to talk about like the processions and about like the ritual side of my work, it's Hecanthoros. If you want to talk about the mercantile, like you you want one of the things that I make, go through the Arunaverse. I just want to thank you for providing a portrait of a person who's engaging directly with this material in an in interactive fashion. I think the daimonic element of this is important. Um, people need to understand that intermediary and linking nature of the daimonies. Uh, daimons are the means by which we uh, are, in, are, are, are connected to the divine world. And so that when you give them embodiment, when you give them enfleshment, when you give them soma, they are able to act through this world and have points of contact with this world. And it doesn't have to be in this rigid, way we're not people living 2000 years ago we're people living here and now and the world we live in now in some ways is very different and the gods are still present and the daimons are still present and so there there's a more practical approach that involves working with what we have now in the here and now and making it something lived and present and relevant to our time i think our guests and I think our guest really just really embodies that, really makes it happen. And I think that's important. I find that they are very interested in what we are doing now. And I am very interested in what they are doing now. I, I feel like that kind of sums it up in terms of the formula is like they're, they, you know, they haven't stopped. They're not trying to act as if it were 2000 years ago. They, they are doing things now. And that fascinates me. And they, um, they're interested in what we are doing now. And coming from, you know, your time and place sincerely uh, with them, to them, uh, results in them, you know, meeting you here and, uh, you know, meeting us and becoming part of our lives, which is much more valuable than play acting it being 2000 years ago in the Eastern Mediterranean, which um, is something that. I'm sure it's great if someone does it, but it's not what I want to do. Like I, I want them to live with me here and now and us to have a reciprocal relationship. And that's the, that's what I do. 
Nicely put. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Joseph. Thank you so much. I had a lovely time. Okay, that was Joseph Clinton Reagan. Genius when it comes to making insold, animated, demonically energized ritual. And we're not saying demonically energized. Let's, yeah, let's so, make the distinction there. Right. We're talking about, about Daimonius. If you don't know what Daimonius are, refer back to our episodes with Angela Voss, with, with um, Edward Butler, with Gregory Shaw, with Christopher Plaisance, um, and you'll get a better idea of what we mean by, by, by Daimonis. Um, also, the episode we did with uh, John Opsopeus on Plethon. We've done a, several articles on episodes on late antique theurgy. So if you need to understand the context of daimons, that's the way to go. Daimons are intermediary spirits, and the word daimon in antiquity did not mean demon. The word daimon was actually demonized to represent cacodaimonis, which are just evil daimons. Daimon just means spirit. A god can be a, a daimon, a, a big spirit. Uh, then you have your personal daimon, your, your attendant daimon. Um, then you have the daimons that are in the Prohodos, the procession of the god who carry the the live the vivifying power of the deity into matter and then um you know transmit it into the forms and the receptacles of of matter you know the the Prohodos leads into the hypodoke so if you're unfamiliar with that idea revisit our episodes on that topic and you'll understand but we love him his art is super cool. And also, I, I think that we may not have touched on the fact that a lot of it is actually very practical. He has banners with the divine names of different deities. For instance, there's a beautiful one with um, Horus the, in, in his falcon form with the, with the sacred words on it. There, there's a beautiful Caduceus one he makes in honor of Hermes. Um, he makes a really interesting one for the goddess with the interlocking moons. And these are great temple banners. They're great. They're great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, great things to have in your temple to energize your temple and animate the space with the energy of the sacred letters and vowels and, and names of the deities. And then he makes these masks and he just does all kinds of incredible things. And so I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend you check out his Etsy page he ships worldwide. So, you know, there's a lot there. You can you can check it out at his Etsy and you can check him out on Facebook. We we really we really can't say enough good about him. And I he he was being humble, but this is somebody who actually has several decades of magical experience under his belt. So he's not just somebody who jumped on the PGM train like half the internet at this point. He is someone who has been very seriously studying and practicing magic all of his life and understands the context of this particular material. I mean, you heard him talking, Dom, about how in childhood him mm -hmm. and his brother were obsessed with Egyptian things and Egyptian lore. You know, we both know him personally as well, and he's just a great guy, super dynamic, super sweet dude. He's passionate, doing what he loves. Uh, can't say enough good things about what he's doing. So, yeah, definitely check out his Etsy page. Yes, absolutely. So I have a book today. If we are, are we prepared for that point? Yep, let's do it. 
I have a book that which fits nicely with this episode. It is a great one. I consider it a classic, and it connects into the subject matter of this episode. So I think that anyone listening will find it useful. If you are unfamiliar with this book, I think it pays for you to look into it if you're interested in the subject matter. It is called Arcana Mundi, Magic and the Occult in the Greek and Roman Worlds. It was written by George Luck. Uh, it is a collection of ancient texts, so he translated, annotated, and introduced them. It was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, now, magic miracles, demonology, demonology, I'm sorry, divination, astrology, and alchemy were the arcana mundi, the secrets of the universe of the ancient Greeks and Romans. So this is a source book of this material. Uh, as it was practiced by witches, sorcerers, magi, astrologers, and others, goetes in the Greek and Roman worlds. And so it has um, several chapters. Uh, the first chapter is magic. The second chapter is miracles. The third chapter is daemonology. So you could pick this book up and read some source texts on daemons if you're interested, divination, astrology, alchemy. There's a select bibliography, index of ancient sources. And I mean, he's he's drawing on all kinds of sources. Homer, Apollonius of Rhodes, Horace, Virgil, Seneca, Tacitus, the different magical papyri, the Paris, the Leyden, magical papyrus, Philostratus, Por Porphyry, Iamblichus, Seneca, Plutarch, Ptolemy, Apuleius, Zosimus. Uh, we had an excellent episode on Zosimus of Panopolis with Shannon Grimes, one of my all-time favorite episodes that we did. Um, and that's another interesting uh, one you could listen to if you're interested in this subject matter. But this is just excellent. Like if I flip open to the demonology chapter, you know, there's quotes, demons and spirits of the dead. And there's a nice introduction, you know, ghosts and related phenomena, philosophers on demons, guardian spirits. Uh, uh, even pagans, Christians, and skeptics on daimons. And again, this is all drawn from the sources, but then he, he, he gives you context of the sources, uh, including actual source texts. So there's Homer's Odyssey quoted here, this Hesiod and his works and days, um, Aeschylus, Plato's Apology of Socrates, Pausanias's Description of Greece. This is all in the chapter on daimons, Seneca's, Lucan. So you have really just a wonderful book here. If you're interested in divination, you know, here's Cicero on divination, talking about a famous oracle given to the wealthiest ruler of Asia Minor. If I flip over to magic, you know, here we have um, Theocritus and his idols uh, talking about love magic with the Yinks and um, with the with with Aphrodite and with with the Arcadian herb that was used in this context and and the lizard that was used in a particular spell. So it's just you know you've Horace is here H O R A C E the writer. So this is a wonderful book. It really helps you to understand what magic was like in that world and at that time. And the introductions alone in these chapters are worth it because he really gives you wonderful contextual illustration to help you understand. And he he also goes into, and he goes into the Greek, into the Roman, into the Hebrew cultures. So this book, Arcana Mundi, is excellent if you're interested in the papyri because it helps you to understand the sort of cultural melting pot 
and how this magic arose and how it was practiced and who it was practiced by. And then it's not just a, a study that's saying all of that, but it's giving you the ancient sources so that you can examine them yourself. So for somebody who is an operative practitioner, uh, this is worth its weight in gold. It's a very nice little book. It's called Arcana Mundi, Magic in the Greek and Roman Worlds by George Luck, G-E-O-R-G with no E. Great. Thank you very much for that. I think we are done for this episode. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your listenership. Please find us on all the different platforms. Give us uh, a like on those platforms um, and a review if if you feel up to it. Um, other than guys, that, guys, one like, one prayer. One like, one prayer. <laughs> uh, see you in the next episode. <laughs>